All right, message, Ecclesiastes. Let's begin here from chapter 1 and chapter 2. The scripture reading is on the screen to your left and right. Here we go. The words of a teacher, son of David, king, in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must lead them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then they must leave all they own to another who is not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun all their days? Their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, said this. The truest of all men was the man of sorrows. And the truest of all books is Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. The truest of all books, he says, and you may be saying, well, I don't know about that. Maybe the most depressing of all books. Maybe the most confusing of all books, right? I mean, if, if that's you, if you're asking or thinking that, well, if you're asking, man, does the, does the Bible really say... That all of life is pointless and meaningless. Listen, just give me a chance today to show you maybe, just maybe, Melville was right. And show you why that Christians have, from the beginning, over the centuries, insisted that this book be included in what's called the Bible. And why, maybe, just maybe, the wisdom in it can change your life. So let's try to dive down, grab hold of that wisdom by looking at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at two keys and three tests. And finally, one gift. Another way of putting it is we can grasp the book through the keys. We can apply it through the tests and have our hearts changed by seeing, looking at a strange gift the book gives us and points us to. In the end, let's go. Number one, two keys. All right, so the first question most people ask, maybe you're asking, uh, is sort of the Butch Cassidy question. You're welcome, boomers. Uh, The question is, 
who is this guy, right? Who is this guy? Who's the guy writing the book? Well, he tells you at the beginning, he says, this is the words of the teacher, right? The words of the teacher. And many people have assumed this is Solomon, though Solomon's name never appears in the book, you'll notice, and it's actually unlikely he was really the author, in my opinion. But whether he was or whether he wasn't, it really doesn't matter, as the larger point is he's wanting you to relate to him not by a given name, but by the name he gives you, which is the teacher. The teacher. Here it says teacher, but in the Hebrew, it's actually, it's the word Kohelet, and some new translations actually call the book Kohelet, and that word literally means, that name means the assembler, the assembler, or to use a bit more of a modern word, he's a professor. He's a professor. He's someone, he's assembling ideas, gathering ideas, and here's the first key. This professor, like all great professors, is wanting to conduct a thought experiment in the book. And the professor here, see, he's holding class and he's proposing something to the world. And you can see that when he says stuff like, well, I, the teacher, applied my mind to study, explore by wisdom, all that's done. See, over and over in the book, if you read it, you'll notice he says stuff like this or stuff like, my wisdom stayed with me, right? So as he tested himself, so he's giving you the cheat code in a way before you ever begin, before he begins, and he keeps giving it to you at key moments in the book. He's, he's like an actor here. He, he sort of breaks the fourth wall, if you know that term. He's a, addressing the audience. He's talking to the screen. For you children of the 80s, this is Ferris Bueller, right, talking to the camera. You're welcome, Gen X. Everybody gets a turn today. He's telling you, don't, uh, don't forget what's happening. Don't forget this is all on purpose, okay? He's saying, let's go on a trip. Let's go on a journey together. I'm going to be your guide. I'm your professor, he says. And together, we're going to do a little experiment. What is it? Well, it's not too hard to see. Almost every commentator you read points it out. The professor is taking you on a journey to look at what he calls, second key here, life under the sun. I mean, you saw it like 20 times just in the little scripture that we read there. That is, he's going to take you on a trip to take a look at what life is like when there is no God. When this life is all there is and all you've got to live for is the right here and the right now. If all you have is what's under the sun, nothing beyond it. See, he's John Lennon before John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven right? No hell below us, above us, only sky. So what is life under the sun, no God involved? What does that kind of life look like? Oh, and right about now, maybe it's beginning to dawn on you. This is an incredibly modern, very forward-thinking book because the experiment he's proposing is the experiment, if you haven't noticed, we're living right now as a culture, Right now as a nation, and here's why. Because what he's proposing isn't necessarily an atheistic thought experiment, hang with me, but a secular thought experiment. And you ask, well, what's the difference? It's this. The atheist says there's no God, but the secular person says, well, there may be, there might not be, but we can't really know, and therefore we're left with this life under the sun, and we have to find our happiness, meaning, comfort right here. The word secular, from the Latin word seculum, it means present, as in this present age is all we know. So basically here, the Kohelet, the professor, he's looking at you, America, looking at us, 21st Western century, uh, Western American culture, and saying, all right, 
deal. Deal. Let's hash it out. I'll try it for you. I'm going to live my life in such a way as to put all my meaning, happiness, and comfort in this life. I'm going to swallow the red pill, and I'm going to circle back around and ask, is that kind of life worth living? That's what he's doing, so let's play along with him. hmm? Let's test ourselves as he does, and he tests himself. He tests us in three ways. Let's take a look. Number two, there are three tests. And you can see the first one here. He says, "Come." I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. That's the first test to find out what is good. And so he goes on to tell you what those pleasures are that he lived for. He said, I had a harem. There's sex, right? He said, I, I got houses that would make NBA players drool. That's what he's saying. I've got food, he says, that was out of this world. And then he summarizes it all like this. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And here's his conclusion. He says, but that also proved to be meaningless. Author Steven Pinker, uh, he's very much a secular person, very much a secular thinker and writer, and maybe you've heard of him. In his recent book called How the Mind Works, he surprisingly had this to say, the secular person about the pursuit of pleasure. Here's the quote. He said, Donald Campbell, an early evolutionary psychologist who studied the psychology of pleasure, described humans as being on a hedonic treadmill where gains in well-being leave us no happier in the long run. Indeed, the study of happiness often sounds like a sermon for traditional values. The numbers show it is not the rich, privileged, robust, or good-looking who are happy. It is those who have spouses, friends, what he calls religion, and challenging, meaningful work. Campbell echoed millennia of wise men and women when he summed up the research. The direct pursuit of happiness is a recipe for an unhappy life. How about that? It's amazing, right? I mean, these even secular writers are acknowledging what the professor has told you thousands of years before, that pursuing pleasure is like trying to run somewhere on a treadmill. It is, to use the professor's beautiful phrase here, it's a chasing after the wind. What a great phrase. What's it, what's it like to chase the wind? Ever thought about that? It's pointless, right? Because what? You can never actually catch the wind. I mean, try grabbing the wind. Hmm? Try putting wind in your hand. Try keeping the wind in your bag. Try putting wind in your closet. Try getting in front of the wind. Try hugging the wind. You can't. So why then would someone chase the wind? Well, because you can feel the wind, right? It's pleasurable, Pleasure's like the wind. It's pleasurable for a moment, but then it moves on. And once you go from feeling pleasure to chasing it, the pleasure again becomes like trying to run to New York on a treadmill. To use a professor's word, it's meaningless. And by the way, it's not just sex or houses or cars that we look for pleasure in today, is it? No, it can be in anything, right? And let me just work through one way. I've had about 10, but I want to focus on one. One way we chase the wind in our modern culture, and it's this. We chase the wind when we overschedule our lives. When we overschedule our lives. That is, we try to fit in so much stuff, we don't succeed at any of it. See, doing and going all the time, all the time, it provides the pleasure 
of an adrenaline rush, but can leave you empty in the end. And statistics reveal just where Americans are, and I'm sure we're included in this. We do too much, too much. We say yes to too much. And especially, and I see this firsthand in my life and world, we get our kids involved in too many activities, especially sports. And you see parents all the time chasing the wind, trying to get their kid to go pro, right? Or get that scholarship, even though the odds are dismal at best. Uh, All the time in parents, we can kill our families, right? Drain pocketbooks, put their faith, put their church involvement on the back burner while they're chasing something or chasing the wind. Listen, I am all for kids' activities. Man, I love them. Matter of fact, if you give me like two minutes here, after the service, I'll show you some videos I've taken of my kids. Actually, I think, Jamie, we've got some clips, don't we, here? Of, uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. And if you coach, you run a league here, you give lessons in sports or art or music, thank you for doing that. You know, th- th- those things are amazing opportunities to teach kids about leadership, amazing life lessons. You spend time with your kids. But when you do so much, you can, you can barely eat together as a family, which, by the way, is one of the most consistent predictors of family success. How often do you eat together? When, when you cancel on your faith or your church that God's made you a member of over and over for your activities or your kids, guess what? Your kids can come to think that either they're God, they come first, or that thing is God, right? He himself gets bumped back because, you know, we just couldn't say no to that thing. Well, why couldn't you say no? I mean, why, why are we more afraid of disappointing a coach than disappointing our community or God himself, right? We're afraid, here's this, because we think it, it's, we're living life under the sun. It's right here, it's right now, it's all we have, and there's not the faith or the principle in place that something is more important than my individual schedule, right, or my kids' activities, a few years ago, 2009, after myself, after being a, a campus missionary for many years, University of Texas, God opened the door. Yeah. Y'all can do that about every five minutes. That'd be real nice. 2009, God opened the door for me to, to, and my family to move back uh, from Tennessee. We were here, moved to Tennessee, came back here to, to serve at Mosaic as a lead pastor. And during that 12 years uh, of being a campus missionary, I raised all my own financial support. And much of it came from this small United Methodist Church I grew up in in the Dallas area. And so uh, I visited there to tell them basically that my time being a full-time campus missionary was coming to an end. I still get to do some of it, thank you. Uh, But that morning, uh, I went to visit to thank them, and that pastor gave me just a couple of minutes to thank the church for all they had done. And so I came down that in front to express my gratitude to the church. And then all of a sudden, about 15 or so grandmothers, gray-haired ladies, began to spontaneously emerge from the church, came down front, turned me around, sat me down, and put their hands on me. Listen, I was there for 20 years. That thing never happened. That kind of thing, it just wouldn't take place, right? I mean, you only raised your hand if you, if you had a question. No one ever did, apparently. So <laughs> who were these ladies? Well, these women were all the Sunday school teachers I had had 25 to 30 years before, and they came forward not to thank me, 
but to thank God for allowing them to see some of the fruit of their labor. They began to say, pray. Like I wasn't even there. God, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for Morgan. Thank you for his ministry. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And one of them, old Mrs. Christine Burkett. Christine, if you're listening today, this is for you. She prayed the scripture. She had prayed for me every week of my life and said it to me every week. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. I began to cry, tear up in that moment, sensing, becoming aware, I was a product of people who had been committed to a vision larger than having a schedule that left no room for God or service to others, you see. And by all accounts, listen, yeah, you clap, great. Thank you for, thank you, grandmothers, yes. And listen, if all the surveys are true, most of you feel because we struggle to say yes to the really important stuff and say no to the smaller stuff, we feel overburdened and worn out, which is how you're going to feel when you chase the wind. So if you won't hear the wisdom of the professor or hear my heart, my heart for you as a pastor, Hear the wisdom of an evolutionary psychologist. Get off the treadmill. It never takes you where you think it will. Enough of that. Second test. Here we go. The second test is reason. Reason, we'll call it that. He says, then I turn my thoughts to consider, and he uses the word wisdom, but this is more along the lines of philosophy, all right? So he's saying, okay, I can see, uh, uh, you know, that, that living for pleasure won't work. Let's see what life would look like if I just committed myself to living by human reason alone. So here's the test. He's asking, can human reason alone really satisfy the human heart? Can it be something we build a culture around? Can it give us all we need for a meaningful life? And the answer, of course, that almost every modern person Every modern thinker gives, every modern ethicist, every person who writes in CNN and Yahoo comments section would say, yes, yes, we can make our own value up, we can make our own reason up, and then you can trace a lot of this kind of thought to one person, a 20th century man named Carl Sagan. If you know that name, Carl Sagan was a man who was a big promoter of this type of thinking. Even though he's passed away, his show, Cosmos, isn't on the air anymore. I still meet people all the time who point to him as foundational for their thinking. So let's take a look at him briefly. Sagan was famous for saying, quote, the cosmos, if you've seen the show, of course, you, you remember his voice, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Which, by the way, that's as massive a faith statement as any Christian, Hindu, or Muslim has ever uh, presented. But because of that statement, the, the, the universe, the cosmos is all there is. See, he's saying there's only life under the sun. He recognized, though, an inherent problem in that, and maybe you've recognized it. He, he says, I can see that that would maybe sound depressing and discouraging, right? So he responded to that, and he said this. Here's his quote. I am a collection of water, calcium, and organic molecules called Carl Sagan. You are a collection of almost identical molecules, molecules with a different collective label. Some people find this idea demeaning to human dignity. For myself, I find it elevating that our universe permits the evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we. All right. He's saying, listen, I know when I tell you you're only a chemical collection 
That sounds depressing and discouraging, like you don't mean anything. But he says, no, that's elevating. He says, I, I like that. And, of course, all the new atheists today would agree, right? You go to Barnes & Noble, and it's the, the Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris guys. And they say, listen, yeah, your meaning is whatever you make it. Use your own wisdom, your own reason to have a satisfying life. Make up meaning, and you'll be happy. But the professor has a different view. He says, no, no, if you're saying that, he says, if a culture says that, it's only because it's really not thinking. Really not thinking. This is what he says. The wise have eyes in their heads. The fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. In other words, yes, for a while, it's better to be smart than stupid. Yes, for a while, it's better to try to make the world a better place. Better to have eyes in your head in the light than bump around in the darkness. But he says the same fate overtakes them both, which is what? We'll look at verse 16. He says, the wise, like the fool, won't be remembered. That those days have already come when both have been forgotten like the fool, The wise too must die. He's saying that any view of life or culture that doesn't include the view of your ultimate death and the ultimate irrelevance of your life is disingenuine. It's gutless. It doesn't have the guts to face the facts. Sure, you can do good stuff now, but the odds are, should the planet make it a few thousand years? I mean, now check it, a few hundred years, no one's going to remember you. Can you even name your own great-great-grandparents? That's your family, see. Jean-Paul Sartre, the 20th century existentialist, they were way more honest and genuine than our 21st century new atheists. They said, listen, y'all, let's just keep it real. If there's no God, our reason doesn't matter. Our lives don't matter. I mean, Sartre, he's an atheist. He was famous for saying, I'll paraphrase, if your origin's meaningless, your chemical collection, your future's meaningless, no eternity, have the guts to admit your life is meaningless. Irony is, our modern skeptics call you a Christian foolish for believing in a God they say can't be proven, but they call themselves reasonable for believing in meaning they can't see or prove. Why? All because they, maybe like some of us, don't have the guts to face what the professor says. Human reason alone, lived out under the sun, is meaningless in the end. That's the second test. Third test, he says, he calls it work. Work, and I'll be briefer about this one. I'll be looking at that in depth, this idea in depth, uh, next month, and I hope you'll be here for that. It's going to be great. But here's what the professor has to say about your work. He says, what do you get, people, hmm, for all your work? You go to work every day, what do you get for it? Verse 23, he tells you, all you get is grief and pain when you work under the sun, even at night, your mind can't rest. Here, he's articulating the heart of our modern dilemma with work. We've all felt this. We work, we, you know, some of us, we owe, we owe. So off to work, we go, right? We work and we work and we work all day, some of us all night. And then when we're done, our minds can't even rest. And I don't know about you, 
that's been me more times than I'd ever care to admit. Something goes wrong in some way, right? My mind races, maybe your mind races to the point where you can't sleep. And if that's you, if that happens over and over, I promise you, after a while, you're going to think, you're going to ask, what's the point? What's the point? What's it all for? And what are you feeling? Oh, you're feeling the meaninglessness of work done under the sun. And if you're feeling that way about your work, and I'm not talking about that crummy job, you know, that you know you weren't made to do, or a, a crummy job where your boss beats you up, or your coworkers are dealing stuff on the side. No, some of you have worked that. I've worked that. All right. No, I'm talking about some work that you know that you can do, that you've put your heart effort into. It doesn't go like you thought. That person didn't like it or they didn't give you credit. You, they didn't say something and now you can't sleep. And if that's you, you feel that way. That's work done under the sun. You've forgotten. There is a God who's bigger bigger than you, who is for you, who loves you. He's bigger than your boss. He's bigger than your client. He's bigger than your customer. You put all your meaning into your work and win, of course, win your hearts. Life savings are in your work. Of course, you'll feel crushed when criticism comes. Of course, you'll die a thousand deaths when the criticism comes your way because you're not separate from your work. Of course, you'll want to do what all those people on Wall Street did in 08, right? When the market crashed, you feel like maybe even killing yourself. Why? Because your work wasn't just your work. Your work was your life. Your work was your meaning. But when you do it under the sun, it's meaningless. A man by the name of Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist, and he was imprisoned in World War II by the Nazi regime and put into a death camp, and he wrote a book about his experiences there with all the the prisoners in that death camp, and he called it Man's Search for Meaning. And in the book, he talks over and over about the importance of meaning in a person's life and how, if you have it, you can survive anything. He put it like this after seeing his friends die. He said, the person who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he'd also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. We all feared for this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Man's search for meaning is a primary force in his life. The case he makes in the book is that if a prisoner came in and all they had to live for was something temporary that a death camp could take away if all they were living for was their family or a friend or a loved one and that person died he said they would be crushed and wither away and give up their life but he said if a prisoner had something that even a death camp couldn't take away something beyond the sun they could make it out And he presses you to ask yourself in his book, he presses you to ask, how can I get something beyond the sun? How can I get a real meaning that no death camp, even the smaller death camps of life, can take away? Well, you can get that from all things, all things, from a gift, strange gift the professor points you to. In the end, let's look at that, number three, one gift. If you read the book closely, you'll notice there's something astonishing that happens at the end of chapter 2. And that astonishing thing is this, that God finally shows up. 
in the conversation. God's, he's only mentioned one time in chapter one, not at all during the whole seminar and the experiment. Until the end, he comes back into view, and this is what it says. The conclusion is a person could do nothing better, eat and drink, find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. All right, what's God doing here? God's a giver, right? Yeah, he's giving satisfaction. Uh, He's giving wisdom, knowledge. He's giving happiness. But look at what else God gives. There's one more gift that says that God gives. He says, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Well, what's that? To the sinner, that means a person who's living life under the sun as if there's no God. He says, God gives a gift also. Chapter one calls it the gift of futility. A futility of despair that comes from working and living, but never making progress. You say, well, what kind of a gift is that? I mean, how can that be a gift? How can futility be a gift from God? Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a little book, brilliant but hard to read, called The Sickness Unto Death, where he said, people's hearts, your heart, human heart, gets sick when it builds its identity and foundation on anything other than God. And he said, if you do that, if you're trying to live in some way apart from God in any area, he said, you're really just, quote, a king without a country. He really rule over nothing. This is because such a self is forever building castles in the air. And just when it seems on the point of having the building finished at a whim, it can and often does dissolve the whole thing into nothing. And he goes on to say, you can know when you're doing this. You can know when you're just building air castles. It's when you start to feel despair about life, about work, about pleasure, about family. Whenever you begin to feel that what you're doing is meaningless, he says, at that point, oh, your despair, your sense of futility, it's a gift because it shows you at that point. You're really living without God. The despair is a gift, he says. It's like a symptom. It exposes a larger cancer underneath. Right. And he's right. He's right. So what if? Hmm? What if this morning you looked at that place of despair in your heart as a gift? What if you saw it's pointing you to a larger truth that at that point, or maybe in general, you're living life under the sun, no God involved. See, those struggles are signs. The sickness is revealed there. The signs, though, they reveal a sickness. How, though, how can they all be healed? The answer, well, the professor doesn't give it. But centuries later, another teacher would. Because a greater teacher came along. His name was Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Look at this. It's amazing. It says Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Oh, you say, of course, the answer is Jesus, right? I'm in a church today. No, no, no. Look at what this is saying. This is saying that when Jesus came, when the greater teacher came, he had a message for you. The message, it says, of the gospel, good news, the gospel of the 
kingdom. Oh, what does that mean? It means that Jesus came to announce. This word says proclaim. That means like uh, something you can't miss. Like when that sweet ride pulls up next to you at the light with the 15-inch subwoofers, right? I mean, it rattles everything. It shakes the world around you. You can't miss it. He's come to proclaim. There's something bigger than this world, beyond this world, beyond the sun. He calls it a kingdom. It's full of hope and life and faith and meaning. And look at what this kingdom brings. It says healing for every kind of sickness, every kind, broken bodies, broken hearts, dead limbs, despairing lives. They're the only way for your life to be healed at any point, for it to be rebuilt and moved from living under the sun to beyond the sky is to see and believe and trust. There is a bigger world than the one you live in. There's a king, right? A savior who's come from beyond the world, punctured the box top of our world, and let light and love and hope leak in. Do you know why you despair when you do, hmm? Why you live for pleasure when you do. Why you live for your mind when you do. Here's this. It's because you're living, hear me, for something too small. Too small. See, the irony is, what this Ecclesiastes shows us, is our lives, our hearts get sick. Oh, they get sick when our lives are too small. When they're too focused on us and our wants and our desires. The despair you feel, that's just the toes of your soul bumping up a shoe. That's a world that's too small for it. But Jesus has come to proclaim to you today. Oh, he wants you to take off, man, those junior high sneakers. Man, put on some size uh, 15 Steph Curry's. There you go. Gen Y right millennials and say I come to put you in something way bigger you ever imagined and you're going to grow into it see you were hoping that your work was going to make you something and listen I hope you make a billion dollars I hope you all make it big get paid right I mean I hope you're you you thought your kids uh, were going to be and make you something and I hope your kids are amazing I hope they all make the league you know go pro and if they do we'll take all the credit for it right I mean came from mosaic that's what we're going to say You thought having somebody hot in your life was going to make the pain go, listen, I hope you snag that person, right? I did. Thank you. All right. But all those hopes, as an ultimate hope, they're way too small. You get sick when your hopes are too small. The despair you feel, that's a symptom of sick hopes. When they're limited to under the sun, Jesus came to heal every way our hearts get sick. On the cross, what did he cry out? My God, where are you? What's he getting? Silence of heaven, right? He was experiencing life under the sun. No God. And it broke him. It broke him. And he took on the cross all the meaninglessness of life into his own body, own heart, and was resurrected. Now that we all could be healed, and hear me, that healing begins the moment you realize this life isn't all there is, and the healing grows every time you begin to follow in Jesus' steps, and you, like him, begin to proclaim the kingdom. And you begin to bring healing into someone else's life. Oh, half the time, I know when I feel depressed, it's because all I'm doing is thinking about me, right? When was the last time you, you, You shared your story. 
your testimony of healing or salvation, of when you were forever changed, like we sang? When the, when's the last time you shared a story about that, that time you did something really big for God? That risk you took, right? When was the last time you looked at someone and just said, man, follow me as I follow Christ? You make a disciple. Oh, See, Ecclesiastes, it's so powerful because it's not just Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes in light of the kingdom of a world beyond this one you can be a part of. can heal your life because it grows your life, allows fresh air in the room. And as we do this, church, as we proclaim it, as we, when we roll up 183 in our big ride with 15-inch subwoofers of glory, we begin to rattle people's lives, rattle the city in a good way, right, in a healing way, through service, right, through prayer, through humility, through giving, through loving, the kingdom comes. And people know there's more than life under the sun.